what we're finding now with content is being able to provide articles that we see are getting a lot of traction, we end up turning into videos because while blog articles are great and they get a lot of traffic, let's let's be honest, attention spans again, most people aren't willing to read a very long article. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how do you make sure that customers are aware of your differentiators when you're in a crowded marketplace, why they made a near-fatal mistake by going first into retail, and how the transition to e-commerce saved their business, and what is a multi-point content strategy and how they use to drive tons of organic traffic. Before we get into our show, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the Shopify App Store. Shopify apps help you easily customize and add features to your store to make it your own. The App Store hosts over 4,000 apps built specifically for Shopify businesses. Shopify developers all over the world built these apps to help you save time and unlock a range of new features, from showing your Instagram feed on your store to offering loyalty rewards and more. Check out shopify.com slash app store for the latest Shopify apps. Today, I'm joined by Ryan Roberts, Senior Director of E-Commerce from Killcliff. Killcliff is America's best tasting and best-selling clean energy drink founded by former Navy SEAL and started 2011 and based out of Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here. Yeah, so we had mentioned that you're the Senior Director of E-Commerce. I joined the company about four years ago. Would love if you could tell us a little bit more about the kind of beginnings of the business, you know, about 10 years ago. Talk to us more about the, the, the origin of the, of the Kill Cliff brand. Absolutely. So the company was founded in 2011 by Todd Ehrlich, who's a former Navy SEAL. Todd had kind of got tired of everything in the market place available. So all the drinks that were currently available were either sugar water or extremely high doses of toxic fake ingredients that we we like to call out on a lot of the companies out there still. So early on, the company, when it was first founded, uh, wasn't actually clear direction where we were headed with the, with the brand. So Todd came up with the original idea of Killcliff to, like I said, as a better for you replacement of other products in the market, you know, talked with some investors, ended up going to market with our original Killcliff, which is now uh, tagged as our Killcliff Energize and Recover Tasty Blood Orange. So that was the product we originally launched with and went to uh, production with about 80,000 cases stored in his garage. (laughs) So him and our very first employee, GWs, decided to start pushing the product and they started hitting local Atlanta bars. During original testing, what they realized is like, okay, well, this drink, while it does provide hydration benefits, it also helps with kind of muscle recovery after a workout or a long day. They realized that it also helps with hangovers. Mm. So it's kind of a funny byproduct of the, the the brand. And so they started going to a lot of bars local in Atlanta and selling, literally selling out the trunk of their car. And kind of grew the brand from that. A couple of years later, we started getting into CrossFit became really big at the time. So as CrossFit was growing, we kind of naturally grew along with it. We started selling into some of the gyms and we found a very good fit there, right? So with, with CrossFit athletes, they typically like for better for you products. They're counting their macros all their time. They're always conscious of what they're putting in their body And that's how we kind of found a great fit there. Our product was clean ingredients, better for you, 
functional. We weren't sitting here and selling, you know, snake oil to anybody. It was just basic ingredients, right? We have B vitamins, electrolytes, enzymes, and kind of plant extracts that help through that natural recovery process with muscle fatigue, inflammation, soreness, uh, as well as the hydration benefits after a tough workout. So it absolutely perfect overlap with CrossFit. We accelerated for a couple of years that being around 2013 through 2015. At that time, we realized we were growing so fast that, okay, well, it's time we start looking outside of the CrossFit market. Like where else should we be? Uh, the struggle we ran into at that time was everybody perceived us as an energy drink, right? 12 ounce slim can looks like an energy drink. Thanks to, uh, the billion dollar bull out there right now. So we struggled early on fighting that kind of stigma that, Oh, we're not an energy drink. Oh, now we've got to get into a science fight and do all this scientific explanation. Like, okay, well then what are you? Because a recovery drink didn't exist at that time. Right. People were used to, okay, I'm used to Gatorade for hydration or I'm used to something for energy, but this space really didn't exist. So we started getting into that struggle of explaining, okay, well, we, we help after a workout or we help after, you know, you've been working all day and you're kind of exhausted, but it's too late in the day to really have an energy drink. Well, we fit that use case perfectly. So we started trying to expand and um, had brought in some persons at the time that would help through that expansion. Of course, natural for the CBG world and drink world in particular is to expand into retail. Uh, unfortunately, I, th I think we were a little aggressive at that time and trying to go retail before our, our brand was really well known. And we saw some of the struggles trying to get into the retail space and, of course, pull through in the retail space at that time. So there was a strong pullback uh, after that. So we went into some retail channels, realized, hey, we're, it's not really working for us here. So we need to do some reevaluation, uh, continue to try expanding into some other customer bases. So we were running on Magento, which uh, as a lot of people that are familiar with e-commerce are, that becomes a four-letter word real quickly to them. Uh, had some struggles with the platform, especially being a small brand. Of course, went through all the development side and outsourcing and trying to find people that could actually work the website since we were a very small team internally. Saw, saw the struggles there, continued to, to fight through the expansion online and Unfortunately, like all small brands, we started struggling a little bit trying to figure out, okay, who's our target audience? Maybe we thought we knew that target audience, but maybe we really don't. So who are, who's really buying from us? And what we found is this kind of military affinity audience that we like to, we call them. So it's not necessarily people that are been in the military or served in the military or even necessarily um, have family members in the military. It's a lot broader than that. You know, it, it doesn't, it's all encompassing of service members, veterans, their family members, yes, but it's also people that may just have friends that were military or, you know, feel like a real closeness with them. And that's, that's the common thread that we saw across our entire audience. And that resonated or our brand resonated with them because of our founding, Todd being a Navy SEAL. And early on, Todd had a mission. He wanted to be one of the largest donors to the Navy SEAL Foundation. So as our company continued to grow, we, of course, went through every company's struggles of how are we going to pay the bills this month? Uh, do we need to focus on sales or do we need to focus on being profitable? Um, there was times where we were really struggling necessarily with figuring out payroll and growth. But we always managed to cut a check to the Navy SEAL Foundation. 
uh, it was just that was our mission and our focus is to give back to that community. And uh, that, of course, resonated with a lot of our customers, too, and continued to propel our growth for years to come. Awesome. So really appreciate that that kind of um, the bird's eye view. And you said there are a lot of interesting things that I want to dive into. Uh, one of the first things you had mentioned was around this, uh, when, when, when those 80,000 cases are sitting in the garage, the first thing that the early team started doing was looking to find out, it sounded like sampling or just trying to figure out what are the, what does the target audience think about this? And the time it was going to these bars and uh, during that experience, uh, the, the team had discovered that there were the, almost like new use cases or new features, right? This hangover cure aspect of it. When, when those things are kind of discovered, how does that, I mean, I'm sure it still happens today as the company is, you know, a little bit more mature, a little more established, but when you discover new use cases, new features, uh, for your product, what, what do you, what do you do that? What do you do with that kind of information? So we've, we always simply try leaning into it, right? Uh, we'll do a little bit of investigation. Is, is this something that's really widespread, wide, widely used? So a good example is, uh, um, most military members, tend to lean towards borderline alcoholics, all joking aside, um, we, we like to drink. And one of those use cases was using our beverages as a mixer, right? The, uh, the typical energy drink that's sold in just about every bar across the country, high caffeine, mixing with alcohol is not necessarily the best uh, formula for a, a healthy night or a safe night. So the bars that brought us in early on love the fact that our recovery drink had very, very low caffeine, it's 25 milligrams to serve in the functional role of muscle recovery. Um, so they liked the fact it was low caffeine. They liked the fact that, okay, yes, it, it does assist with hydration, possible hangover cure. It's perfect. So we lean heavily into that with pushing the product into the bars. The muscle recovery, like the gyms, was not initially a, a real target audience of ours either. It just happened to be once we started sampling and people were like, hey, this is a perfect drink for what we do. We're like, hey, you're right. Absolutely. So uh, you've got to be very nimble, especially early on as a, a business, to be able to pivot to some of those target audiences. You know, a lot of times people design a product with a specific target audience in mind and come to find out that's not their ideal target audience at all. And you just have to be nimble and be able to pivot to focus on that. And that's exactly what we did with CrossFit. And that's what helped us grow and continue to grow in that community for several years. The same thing with bars. I mean, some of the original bars that brought our product in back in 2011 uh, still sell the product and sell more of it than they do some of the the big popular name brands that are out there. Mm. So as you're kind of almost like rubbing against uh, adjacent markets where you're at these bars and it's, it's, it, you know, you're hearing from, from customers at these bars, oh, this would be great in the gym. This would be great after I get a workout and you start hearing that you lean into it. How do you, how do you, these days or even back then, how do you, how does a company make sure that it's always almost open or has an open mind to, to just to explore these either adjacent markets or maybe even markets that you didn't think of? Because, you know, as you had mentioned, it was like almost this transition. I'm sure there are more stages in between, but almost like it's a hangover cure into CrossFit, into this military affinity audience. Like they're, you know, they are related in some ways, but it still requires, it still maybe requires some uh, proactive measures to make sure that you're always staying open-minded to new markets for your products. So how does the company make sure that that's always happening? 
Absolutely. So one thing that worked for us extremely well was making sure that these markets have a good bit of overlap. Uh, it it kind of, you've heard the, the cliche, you want to be a, a big fish in a small pond, which helps with growth early on. Um, and a lot of companies make that pivot too early to start trying to expand into other areas that doesn't don't uh, that doesn't necessarily have a, a clean overlap, right? And they end up spreading themselves too thin and kind of um, end up having to pull back extremely hard or uh, for some of them, unfortunately, they completely fail based off what they assume. So when as we were looking at those and looking at expanding into those additional audiences or use cases as you were, we always had to do a deep dive evaluation, but like, okay, what does the overlap here look like? Whether it's demographic data, persona data, or anything along those lines, we, we really wanted to make sure that, okay, uh, CrossFit and the military affinity audience at the first glance doesn't actually necessarily map up for a lot of people, but it actually has a very strong overlap. Uh, CrossFit was kind of rooted in military tradition and the type of workouts that they were doing. Um, it's, I mean, you go into any CrossFit gym today, they're flying almost every single military branch flag along with, you know, multiple American flags sometimes. And so there was it, naturally a lot of overlap there. So it helped us. Um, and then, of course, you'll see a lot of overlap because at our core, our core message of being a mission driven organization and being a, a veteran business and owning that and owning who we are, whether that be uh, super serious, focused, structured, uh, this is our mission or the typical irreverent dark humor that you see from a lot of military personnel that, oh, am I not supposed to be laughing at this joke that's a little dark, right? Um, so we own own that. And that's become our motto over the years is just own it, right? No matter who you are, no matter what you do, what your focus is, just own it. You go with it and you push through. Um, a lot of that's rooted in our military training. A good portion of the people that work for the company are veterans. And um, it kind of helps push, continue to push that message. Mm. You mentioned that to make sure that there's an overlap. And I think that that's a, a very... Um, uh, a great point about how which direction to expand into next. Well, what do you what do you, what's your what do you what do you guys do? Or what's the the process to make sure that there is an overlap? Is it just like oh, this feels like there's an overlap, or is there some kind of data driven aspect of it? Like, how do you make sure that you are expanding to a place that's not just a clean break from your your current audience, your current market? So, to me, I, I'm definitely a, a data driven person. So, in my opinion, insights drive business. So if you're moving your business online and you're really looking at growth, you, you've got to dive into the numbers and understand not necessarily or not just where your customers come from, but who they are. You've got to spend some time. A lot, a lot of people are like, oh, well, these are these are the customers coming to our website. Right. And that's just who they are. That's our, our target audience. But you have to understand how to talk to those specific people. And that's, you know, we've, we've all heard the terminology thrown around the internet for years of uh, buyer personas. And uh, at first glance, it seems kind of silly that you, you really need to put a persona with uh, a buying group that's coming into your site. But as you work through it, it becomes a lot more clear and okay. If I'm this person, this is kind of the messaging that's going to resonate with me. Uh, so we, we've really leaned into the analytics side of piece. And to be honest, there's probably times we overanalyze our business, but, uh, if you don't know where you've been and how you got there necessarily, it's hard to direct where you're going to go. 
Mm, makes sense. So you mentioned that this idea of like owning who you are, owning who the, the audience is, owning who, who your, your customers are. So as you're making these kind of transitions, expanding to different markets, what do you do to make sure that you are kind of, you know, speaking their language or talking and talking to them, especially when you are, you know, making this expansion into other markets and you don't want to you know lose what you already have? Well, so that's a that's a, a great point because it actually helped change the direction of this company drastically with making that decision and kind of figuring out not only how we own who we are, but our audience and what they expect and want from us. So about four years ago, we made the decision. So we I told you the story we founded on a, a recovery drink, right? But the, we fought the, the science fight for a long time that we're not an energy drink. We're not an energy drink. We're a recovery drink. This is our use case. Well, we listened to our customers and kind of owned what they gave us the, the honest feedback on. And that's that's something that we've continued to do over the years with flavor revisions or product revisions. And four years ago, we made the decision, you know what? Our, our customers are screaming about a, an energy drink. Like we're a recovery drink, but maybe we need to take a deeper dive into this. Be like, okay, the energy drink market's awful. It's it couldn't some of the ingredients in these products couldn't be worse for you, right? Like there's high risk of heart palpitations, heart arrhythmia, all kinds of side effects with the toxic ingredients they put into them. So we stepped into that arena. It's like, you know what? This is what our customers want. Let's design a better for you energy drink. So in 2018, we launched. A, the first clean energy drink. And at that point, we've titled ourselves the clean energy drink company. Uh, our recovery drink, while it does provide kind of a, an energy type functionality of it revives you, our new Ignite product launched in 2008 was strictly geared as a better for you energy drink. We ripped the typical energy drink apart and said, hey, let's take a look at what the, those functional ingredients are. So caffeine, B vitamins without overloading those B vitamins to where you're going to get a crash. And then a big issue here is why a lot of people perceive they feel tired during the day and they feel they need an energy drink is dehydration as well. So we said, well, we're going to make an energy drink with electrolytes. And so we did that. We launched our Ignite product that not only had 150 milligrams of clean caffeine from green tea, it also had six times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink out there. And we ran with it. We owned it. We uh, unfortunately made several mistakes during that process and uh, assumptions rather than, again, listening to our customer. But we own that mistake again, adapted, and then last year re-released our Ignite product with a lot better flavor profile, a lot better. Uh, the, the ingredients didn't change too much. Uh, we leaned in a little bit too early on when we first released it. It was we was like, okay, well we're heavy in the, the CrossFit space. So the gym space. So our energy drink needs to be focused on those people. They're used to pre-workout. So let's make something kind of healthy energy drink. that's kind of focused on that space. And it was a mistake of ours. So we adapted and kind of went the more traditional tasting energy drink route, but with the difference really being that we are clean. Mm. So, so you, when you describe this this thought process about how the you were big in the CrossFit space when and you were looking to launch the product around that that um that time at the company, and 
that there was already a affinity towards like pre-workout. So you were leading into that. That all sounds like it makes sense, right? That's all like logical, like inferences, but it just didn't work out. How do you make sure that that doesn't happen? I think that's a common approach, right? Where you feel like you know the market and you kind of make these like logical, I guess, assumptions about what will work, what wouldn't work. Do you find that that's like a challenge to make sure that 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 you and the team uh, maybe more often than not default to hearing directly from customers rather than kind of making these, um, you know, uh, I guess decisions in, in a silo? Yeah, it, it's something that we learned early on. You can make a lot of assumptions and think through the process at length with your team, right? But at the end of the day, the easiest route is just to ask your customers, Paying customers are some of the most truthful people you'll ever meet because they're if they're paying for something, especially we consider ourselves a, a, a premium brand, right? We're, we're definitely not the $1 energy drink can on the, on the shelf. And what we found is just listen to the customers. They'll, they'll tell you exactly what their dollars of what they're wanting. And that kind of helped us adapt from the early version of our energy drink to what is today. Yeah, and now I'd love to talk more about this this idea of getting this this feedback from your customers, and I would love to kind of see that hear about the range of maybe sophistication that's involved in getting this kind of market research or this feedback. Like, what are some of the, the easiest ways that you you will recommend, like a, a you know smaller company that's just starting up that maybe has a few customers, maybe doesn't have any yet, to get that kind of feedback to make sure that they're heading in the right direction? What are some of this kind of almost like low hanging fruit of that of that area? That's a good, very good question. So where a lot of people fall into a, a bit of a, an issue here is they'll go out and they'll ask their echo chamber, right? Their closest family members, they'll ask, um, maybe do some taste testing. And what we find there is most customers or potential customers get led too much. So you don't get honest feedback. So the typical user testing where, you know, your typical CBG company will go out there and say, I'm going to sample this to a thousand people and get their feedback. And a lot of that feedback you get is uh, absolutely trash. You know, you've got to find a way to get that honest level feedback. And a lot of times that comes with a paying customer. It's a lot more difficult to acquire that feedback when uh, the customer doesn't have something vested in it because they all of a sudden become a, an expert themselves and want to direct you rather than just providing honest critical feedback from something that they had to pay for. Right. Makes sense. That's definitely a very common um, problem that that you're talking about. And what's what's the recommendation? Like, how do you make sure that? So, when you have these kind of paying customers, um, you know, walk us through like tactically. What are you doing? Like, you're, are you emailing them? Like, how do you make sure that you're getting the, the feedback when you do have a a a, a you know a, a person on the other end that would give valuable feedback? How do you make sure that you're able to collect it? So we do sample size testing from our customer base and it's basically equal parts, um, your VIP customers, equal parts, your customers that bought one time and bounced. And then of course your, your random customers that, you know, might buy every great once in a while. So um, review apps do great for a lot of things, but a lot of times it's people think that they're submitting a review off into the internet space. No one's going to really read it. So it lacks a lot of personalization. So while we do obviously collect reviews because we want to be able to publish them for strategic reasons, right? We also do uh, on the side surveys that are a lot more personal, whether that's 
Uh, it comes from an email direct from me or one of my team members that run our email marketing or SMS. It's a, a lot more personal message saying, letting them know, hey, we, we are a small company. And that adds some benefits here because we're able to talk to you a little bit more on a personal level and get your honest feedback. We care about your feedback and this is how we grow and evolve as a company. So we need your feedback. Be brutally honest as possible. Um, you're not going to hurt our feelings here. I mean, so let's, let's get your feedback here and we'll kind of go from it. And then at that point, it, it kind of becomes a statistics model, right? You're going to have your typical bell curve and outliers of people that, I mean, I, I can get two extremely brutal, honest feedback surveys back to back. One that's critical, it says our drink's too bitter. One that's critical, it says our drink's too sweet and literally talking about the same drink. So you kind of have to scramble out that noise and figure out where the bulk of that, where your feedback lies and do what you can to adjust from there. Yeah, and speaking of this kind of like signal to noise situation, when you are talking about getting feedback from these VIP customers, one-time customers, or once-in-a-while customers, uh, do, what what are the kind of the, the the benefits from following the feedback from these different types of customers? Like almost like these, is there different? A is there a difference between the answers you hear from these kind of drive-by customers versus like the stickier, more returning customers? Like, is the is are the answers different? And how do you know which one is more important to follow or focus on at any given time? So it, it's a bigger and broader picture than necessarily just those those customers. Um, VIP customers tend to give you a lot more feedback on the, the company as a whole because they're typically um, uh, big fans of the brand. So they're going to almost love everything and anything you do. So you're going to have those customers. And again, I, I think you've kind of got to filter through the noise there and get what they're saying because, um, like I said, they're going to give you a little bit more, I guess, less critical feedback. And you balance that with the people that bought one time and done and maybe don't have a connection to your brand. So it, it's there's no clear-cut, concise formula here, or else I'd probably be retired by this point, right, if I had that exact formula. Mm-hmm. But it's a matter of juggling the, those and kind of going through each piece and running a couple of statistical models to figure out, okay, where does it make the most sense to make changes? And if those changes are made, how does it affect our existing customer base? Because the last thing you want to do is necessarily isolate those VIP customers now, just because you're trying to appease the, the, the customers that bought one and done, right? So you've got to make small incremental changes that can be a little bit more mainstream as you were the, with the knowledge that you are going to exclude possibly some of those VIP customers and still exclude some people. I mean, not everybody's going to love your brand. That's just the way it is. And the longer or the less time you spend on realizing that, I think the, the easier it is to handle change and continue moving forward without kind of spinning your wheels. Yeah, one thing you had mentioned a couple of times now is about this ability to the importance and the bill and and your ability to adapt quickly. When you do need to make an adjustment, let's say an adjustment to like a product, or you're just getting feedback that the product is not not what they expect or what they wanted. What well, what's involved in in this this pivoting? Like how quickly are we talking about? Like what's involved usually when uh, the the company realizes okay, we have to change something. So when it comes to our product as a whole, it's, it's a little 
slow of a process, right? Because when we run production, we're, we're producing mass quantities of our, mm-hmm. our drinks. But as we're collecting that feedback, we, we know and can plan for future production runs if we need to make small incremental changes or if we need to just uh, throw our hands in the air and say, hey, we, we made a mistake. We're going to make a complete change. And we, we've done that before. Like we've made small, both small incremental changes to where we needed to tweak a flavor. And then we've completely scrapped our entire Ignite energy drink line and completely re-released all new flavors and said, hey, uh, this is this is what it is now. Um, but it required a lot of testing and kind of like I said, user feedback. We are a lot more nimble than some of our competitors. And I think that's kind of helped us lead our access online. Most of your beverage brands are going to be primarily in the retail space where we've had the luck and been fortunate enough to be primarily direct to consumer online, which is something a lot more common now than it was a couple of years ago. And it allows us to be a lot more dynamic. We can we can do a little bit smaller production runs if we're not loading out massive retailers. We can get quicker feedback from customers as opposed to waiting through the the sale the long sales cycle in retail, and it allows us to be a lot more nimble as a brand. Mm. Now, when you are creating creating new drinks or re- releasing uh, new new takes on on uh, other previous attempts at, at entering a different market. Uh, how do you make sure that you're not overwhelming customers with with choices, right? When you have a, a you're you're selling a drink and there's different flavors, different use cases for different kinds of drinks. How do you make sure that that the customers are coming in and not just kind of overwhelmed and have this kind of an, an analysis or paralysis by analysis or analysis paralysis situation where they're not sure which which drink to go with? Uh, you said it perfectly, right? There, there's plenty of companies out there that you see in our space that just flavor after flavor after flavor. And there's, you're, you're overwhelmed at choice to that point. Right. So why, while you may get more eyes on those, the, the chance of conversion rates extremely reduced at that point. And that's what we found. Most of our product lines, we've maintained very few flavors. Uh, our largest part of product line right now has seven flavors and then a, a variety pack option. So we decided early on that it's it's better to be a little bit more simple on the, the flavor profile approach. It allows us to do lower production runs and stay a little bit more nimble when it comes to inventory levels. And then it also allows us to adjust. And, you know, there's times where we've talked through, let's do a temporary flavor release to test it out there. And being direct to consumer, we're able to do that. So we can sit there and drop a flavor, get user feedback, and then decide to continue on with that flavor long term or not. We we actually did an entire product line release just based off that idea itself. Mm. Now, when you are releasing, especially when you went to the the kind of energy drink space, um, what's involved in changing people's perspectives on these kind of like preconceived notions that they have already about energy drinks? Um, you know, the, the giants in the space already, and they're coming in probably bringing a lot of those that that lens into when you look at your your product. How do you make sure that that they understand that there's a differentiator here that 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 the product is different than what they might have experienced in, uh, with other products in the same category. And it's something that we continue to struggle with even till today. Um, it's the constant cycle of educating people on what they are used to. So most people are, uh, are used to an energy drink and the perception of its toxic ingredients. It's unhealthy. That's becoming more common knowledge now, uh, where a couple of years, years ago, people can really 
honestly care less. They will uh, say the mass, vast majority of people and energy drink consumers could care less about the ingredients and weren't well informed on what those ingredients even were. They knew sugar and they knew no sugar. Oh, their perception of the no sugar or sugar free energy drinks is, oh, these are healthy, but they're really not the while sugar may be taken out of it, you're still putting in other, a lot of our other artificial stuff that can be equally as risky for your body. Um, so what we've done, and it's kind of, it requires a lot more education to our consumers, not only on the product details page, but even in our marketing campaigns, we've had to test what messaging works. And that's how we finally established the simplicity of uh, the clean energy drink company. Um, you see energy drink companies all, all over the place, but we are the clean one. And that's kind of helped differentiate our, our messaging as we push out there. And we lead with a lot of the science on our top of the funnel marketing strategies to acquire you know, new customers as we're prospecting. And then we can kind of get more into the, the brand story as they fall down that funnel. Hey. Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Mm, makes sense. Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the kind of offline world because you mentioned that now you're a D2C brand. You came in as uh, as uh, the, the leading the, the e-commerce charge, and I want to get into that in a second. But I want to talk a little bit about the, the struggles that you had mentioned about this aggressive expansion into retail before the brand was well known. And I think this is, a, I think, a, a, a almost like any new entrepreneur, uh, or not a lot, but like some entrepreneurs will approach this, this fork in the road, should I go into retail? Retail? Should I go into online or in the worst choice, doing both at the same time? And now when you, when the company at the time made the decision to expand into retail, what, what were some of the struggles? I think it sounds like it was a timing thing that, that the stage of the company wasn't where it was at. Like talk to us more about what kind of considerations other entrepreneurs might want to make when they are maybe in the food and beverage space as well. And they're thinking about retail as being an option. Sure. So for us, retail was an extremely risky play. And it's uh, what a lot of people don't realize on the retail space is that, you know, every square foot is, or in our case, every square inch of space is money for that, that retailer. And so as we started venturing in, you know, we, we have customers ask us all the time, like, why don't you, why aren't you in this retailer? Why aren't you in this retailer? And so, well, you know, it's not necessarily our choice. You have to pitch that retailer. You have to convince them that you deserve that shelf space and that you'll not only, not only do you deserve it, but you actually have to be able to justify and pull through on that shelf space for them to justify having you on there versus one of the billion dollar brands and giving them their 72nd flavor on the shelf. Right. So it's, it's definitely been a struggle early on. Um, as we have got into those shelf spaces, what those retailers look for a lot of times is for you to buy your spot just so that they're covering their, their bases, right? Their risk is diverted a little bit. If, if we're prepaying for those slotting fees, then they're a lot more willing to put us on the shelf, but then it still becomes, okay, well, we've got one or one or two spots here on the shelf. And some of these other brands literally have 15 to 30 flavors. And while on e-commerce having too many flavors, a lot of times can be a struggle on the shelf. It's, perception and your typical marketing mindset of, oh, look at all these options. And that's what your brain and eyes are drawn to versus trying to narrow in and reading all the 
ingredients there. So the way you get pull through is brand recognition and knowing that your product's mm-hmm. in there. And that's, that's where we struggled early on in retail. Um, and not only that, but try, really trying to educate the buyers in those retail locations of, Hey, we're, we're a little bit different. So you've got, yes, you've got eight other energy drinks in here, but we're a, a clean version of it. Well, again, as early on, it's, the education wasn't necessarily always always there. So trying to sell them on it and get them to understand, well, people are going to care about ingredients, but that's not necessarily the truth on a shelf. A lot of times mm. just walk up and grab, right? Right. Yeah, it sounds like um, when you have a, a product that is a little bit more nuanced uh, or that is maybe harder to tell that there's a differentiator when it's, just, when it's sitting on the shelf, when you don't have that much time with the, the prospect, um, it's a much bigger challenge when it's uh, on retail versus kind of owning that relationship more and having more time. As you had mentioned, it sounded like a lot of the marketing, the messaging is science-led first, then diving to the brand. There's no time for that when you're selling it uh, to uh, at a retail spot. Customers come in, they make a kind of quick decision, maybe glance quickly at the back, but definitely not enough time to really understand the, 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 the choices that, that they're making a lot of times. Um, now, what, when you when that that struggle was recognized, and there was now this uh, transition that needed to happen to direct to, direct to consumer into e commerce, is that was that hard to pull off? Like, what was it, what's involved in taking business that took a bet on retail now transitioning to e commerce? So it actually wasn't as difficult uh, as you would think. So when I actually started with a company, uh, it'll be four years in in January. So when I started with the company, uh, it was myself and our now CEO started on the the same day. And we had kind of equal mindset with the the direction of the company. We saw the the retail plays and the lack of pull through was happening. You know, we just weren't, we were getting shelf placement, but not necessarily pulling through. So at some point, those retailers are going to step back and say, Hey, you're not selling well enough. We need to pull you out. Um, so rather than waiting for that time to come, we kind of did it ourselves. We said, hey, um, we're, we're readjusting our strategy. And at that point, we went headstrong into direct-to-consumer. That's uh, all my background is kind of on the e-commerce IT realm. And that's what I was brought in to do. So we, we went headfirst into direct-to-consumer, pushed heavy into an extremely uh, aggressive content strategy for the site, because what a lot of people struggle with, especially when I started with the company, we had uh, five flavors. So in about, or about seven SKUs. Uh, so getting into that space and trying to figure out a way to get your customer back to your site was a struggle. Most people would come in and buy once a month. A lot of times they would buy uh, or set up a subscription so they wouldn't even come back to your site necessarily every month. And so we we went in through this process of like, okay, how do we get our users to engage with the brand more? And that developed our current content strategy, whether it be long form or short form. And we, we went um, pretty aggressive into the, the the blogging space as well as video content and kind of it allowed us to show a lot of our uh, who we are as a brand and that irreverent humor that we like to talk about a lot. Um, and then, of course, we're writing these blog articles that are extremely focused on the education piece of what people are already searching for and trying to reach those customers. Like, um, why is sucralose bad for you? Right. Well, we don't put sucralose in our product and 
we're not just a, a Wikipedia page of educating people, but it allowed us an opportunity to really reach out to those customers that may be looking for a better option rather than searching for something real, you know, eccentric and saying, um, I'm sorry, intrinsic and saying, Hey, this is exactly, I'm looking for a clean energy drink. A lot of customers don't necessarily know what mm. to look for, what to search for. So the, this content strategy really allowed us to um, branch out and reach for some of those customers Unfortunately, it probably got a couple of cease and desist from us calling out some of our uh, big brand competitors, but um, that just means that we're making waves and doing the right thing. Yeah. So did this, you mentioned a, a very aggressive content strategy. You mentioned blogging, long form and short form, even vid- in video as well. How, how long did this strategy, I guess maybe we'll talk about like, what's the volume that we're we talking about, like a new blog article once a week, every day, like how frequently were, uh, was the team churning out content at that time? Uh, it was really, a, a, I guess, a multi-point strategy here. So it resonated with our existing customers and gave us an option to uh, bring in new customers as well. So uh, batch and blast in there, getting as many articles as we could out there. With uh, video, a lot of times it was uh, it was very similar. So we had a, a wide selection of the video content out there. We early on we did a lot of short form kind of funny videos, which of course we all know the, they get extremely good traffic, but it's not necessarily always the, the best for bringing customers in because uh, customers' attention spans are very, very short online. So a lot of these videos that we led with that we thought were hilarious internally and maybe talked about our product or whatnot didn't really resonate to calls to action. So we found uh, out early on that, that type of stuff really doesn't work for prospecting and top of the funnel well for us. So we adapted and got more into the, you know, the, the science and benefits of our product on prospecting and educating customers on why we're different. Because if you see energy drink and cool company, then at that point, your key differentiators uh, aren't obvious. So we decided to talk about those first and then kind of bring in the, the brand and that kind of lifestyle brand video and content around it. Yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. I think, I think um, I can kind of see almost like two broad categories of video content. You have your informative, like you mentioned, uh, leading with the science, talking about the, the ingredients, talking about the benefits and, and kind of almost like cut and dry in that way versus the more like you mentioned, entertaining or 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 um, comedic or funny approaches to to kind of creating like viral videos. Um, when when you are taking these these two different approach, when you when you took these two different approaches, you mentioned that it sounded like the goal of it was, of course, getting these conversions or getting people into into your funnel. How do you how do you measure that when it comes to to video? Like, what were you looking at to make sure to to determine? Okay, you know what the the comedy attempts don't, don't seem to be working. Maybe we want, let's focus more on the science information. How did you know that? How did you make that decision? Well, I think the key thing here for a lot of smaller brands and especially startup brands is to not overanalyze and let a piece of content stay out there too long, hoping that it's going to work. Uh, you kind of really need to get it out there and you'll understand very quickly if it's working or not. Take your emotions out of it. So with a lot of the, the short form stuff that we were doing and the funny videos, we we realized early on, okay, well, people aren't really clicking through on it, uh, particularly like Facebook and Instagram. They're not clicking through on it. 
but hey, the you know Facebook is saying that they're watching it. So brand building, right? Well, I think that's a major mistake for a lot of smaller brands. Most small brands can't afford a bunch of marketing dollars towards that brand building without a measurable ROI and call to action that they're seeing revenue generated from. It. So you can wish and hope all you want. Your bank account's just going to run pretty mm-hmm. thin if you do that. Yeah. And it, you know, video is also a much more expensive operation uh, to more time consuming to, to, to piece together. Can you use what, what's worked for like blogging? Like if you see particular topics, articles working well in written content, does it translate to, to video or is it a completely different thing? Like what's your experience been like? It has a lot to do with the customers you're, you're reaching out to. So we're, what we're finding now with content is being able to provide uh, so articles that we see are getting a lot of traction, we end up turning into videos because uh, while blog articles are great and they get a lot of traffic, let's let's be honest, attention spans, again, most people aren't willing to read a very long article. Uh, we adhere to typical blog standards of keeping it short, sweet, concise, and still informative. But there's only so much you can do with the tech side of that with a good portion of the, your customer potential customer base. So what we found is translating that into kind of a, a video breakdown as well uh, has helped tremendously with more customers engaging with it, more time spent on those pages. And then of course uh, the call to actions or click throughs to an actual conversion and driving trial has uh, also gone up. Makes sense. And so you mentioned um, that first uh, a few articles a week and then start introducing video, uh, focusing the video on content that, that's worked well for, for written content. Um, how long did this take to, to pay off? How, how, much, how much time did you invest into this before, before the team realized, okay, this is working, let's keep on doing it? Honestly, it wasn't that long. Uh, a lot of articles were definitely flops. But I mean, you're, you're going to have fails in any kind of thing like that. You can't expect to hit a home run. Uh, it's more important that you get more articles out there because you can always make revisions to them as you as you get analytics around them. So it's it's a constant measure and revise on a lot of articles. And then a lot of articles got just completely scrapped because we realized uh, they're not what our customers want to read. They're not what they're looking for. And this was more or less a waste of time. It's just um we measure all engagement on those on those content pieces. So if we're pushing it out to our existing customers through email or SMS, we're looking at what click throughs like, how much time spent on on site, what's the bounce rate look like, and then we kind of adapt from there. Uh, go back through our SEO meetings and say, okay, do we need to revise this article? Um, maybe gear it a little bit more towards the way Google's algorithms currently working uh, is another piece. So we've had articles that the Within a week of us writing them, they're on the first page of, page of Google. Uh, then they're, you know, a couple of months later, all of a sudden they're on the 50th page. So be able to analyze and understand what's happening there. And if you're not answering the proper questions, old school SEO tactics no longer work. You can't just sit there and keyword load and hope for the best. Google's bots are way too advanced at this point. You have to generate content that the customers want to read and are answering their questions. And that's where we found the most success. Makes sense. And so is this a strategy that you still use today, this this very content-heavy approach, or or you know, have you added some other levers to to, to the marketing uh, that 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 works now, especially now that the brand is much more established than the early days? 
it, a content strategy is always going to be a part of us. So we've um, we saw some great success uh, through the, the blog articles, the short form content, long form content uh, that we worked on for a while. So we had a, a series we released called the American Spirit Series, which really focused on individuals that had an amazing story to tell, whether that, you know, was a, a veteran that got blown up overseas, survived eight with 80% of his body burned and is now a major advocate for mental health and everything veteran causes and just telling their background and story and relating that to our foundation as a brand and our mission as a brand of like, we are, we are American brand. And these are the stories of people that are involved. I mean, we, we won seven telly awards with a couple of those videos uh, beating out large production companies like ESPN on some of the videos. And so we saw ex- extremely great success from those. That was a great brand building option without really having to pay a ton of marketing dollars. It was long form content that got shared out through uh, a lot of those influencers and their platforms as well. Mm. So, but all of that is still a, a strong piece of our content strategy at Kill Cliff. Makes sense. And all of this is kind of centralized and driving uh, traffic back to the website. I want to talk a little bit about the website. Is this all is the website all built in house? Like what's the, uh, what's the, how is this at the website maintained or updated? Absolutely. So we, like every growing brand, we've, we've gone through phases where we've outsourced our website with whether that's design development or um, just operationally for people running it. Um, everything now, uh, I'm a strong advocate of bringing everything in house. There's no one that's going to do a good a job as someone that's passionately tied to your brand. Uh, because at the end of the day, you're generating revenue for your own brand rather than uh, using an agency outside that may be more focused on generating revenue and profitability there. Mm. Um, now, I, I won't say agencies are always bad, right? There are, a lot of times they're amazing. Um, there's different levels. There's the necessary evil ones. There's the ones that are do amazing jobs and help brands grow. So there's plenty of great agencies out there. It's just, in my opinion, what I've found is internally with bringing everything in-house eventually is what works best for us. So we've leveraged those agencies to kind of get everything started, get everything working well, um, and then training up someone internally or hiring someone to kind of take over those roles and accelerate our growth from that point. Makes sense. And as you were working on this in-house and, and making changes or, 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 or having um, outsource or outsource work, uh, make these updates, or have there been any, any uh, important changes or any important tweaks that have been made to the website um, in recent memory that have had a big impact on, on conversions? Yeah, coincidentally, our biggest change was moving to Shopify. No plug needed, right? <laughs> yeah, no worries. So, uh, yeah, our biggest change was probably moving to the Shopify platform. We we came from a Magento 2 enterprise cloud uh, environment to where we probably spent 60% of our development resources, hours, and money towards break fixes, constant patch release, constant what's going on with the server today. Um, and spending that much time and effort trying to keep the site running when you're not really focusing on the profitability and the customer experience side is uh, not a great way to do business. So a little over two years ago, we migrated our site to Shopify and have been able to spend a lot more time focusing on the customer experience, the buyer's journey, and what at the end of the day drives revenue to keep our lights on. 
Makes sense. And as you were on the platform, have there been any apps or tools that that you rely on to to uh, run the business? More than we probably have time to discuss today. Um, one of the things I learned early on is uh, you can't be scared of change and testing applications as long as you uh, handle those testing and use cases appropriately, right? So uh, there's no shortage of apps and tools on the Shopify marketplace. Uh, and you're able to do a good bit of research. We found some great apps on there uh, that worked tremendously well for us early on. We had to move and migrate from those. Some of our favorite, like we we had great success migrating from HubSpot to Klaviyo. Our emails, uh, not only our deliverability, but our just revenue generated from emails uh, really took off after that point. I think HubSpot's a great tool, especially in the B2B world. However, it's severely lacking in a lot of the direct consumer requirements. And Klaviyo helped fix a lot of that early on. Um, we've since moved on from Klaviyo to a, a, a different platform now called Ometria. And uh, I think it's going to continue to allow us to grow our email marketing with a little bit more uh, advanced segmentation. But uh, Klaviyo really was a, a, an amazing stepping stone for us. Then you also have a lot of tools. So one of the things I love about Shopify is that you're able to really implement these tools without a lot of development expertise. So being able to understand the, the buyer's journey and, and inter, excuse me, integrating upsells, cross-sells very easily. Uh, one of the drawbacks with our product line early on is we're energy drink company, right? So we're going to sell you from one flavor to the next. So cross-sells and upsells became a, a little complicated. So what we found though, is that when we've all, we kind of are already knew this internally that we are a lifestyle brand, like the, just like you see, uh, the awful monster energy drink. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm partial. You see the monster energy drink clothing and apparel out there. Uh, people love our apparel. We actually sell a ton of t-shirts for a drink company and those type of items that are lower cost really allowed us to expand our basket size, allowed us to increase the average order value and build out a form of marketing that wasn't there before. People wearing your T-shirt around that says a big, bold kill cliff across it is a great conversation starter. Awesome. Makes sense. So killcliff.com is a website. And I'll, I'll leave this last question. What, what's an area in the, the e-commerce space at Killcliff do you think will be the, the biggest kind of lever that you want to focus on in the, 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 you know, the near future? The biggest lever we're look at, working on now is the getting into micro revisions with uh, improving specific KPIs. So when you're out there looking for... Um, new customers and really figuring out where the best place to spend your marketing dollars is. Don't listen to any customers or um, any companies that say they've got it hundred percent solved. Otherwise all, all those people would be uh, absolutely millionaires and retired if they had a, a perfect attribution model. Right. So the, the key is to be able to understand where your marketing dollars are going and where to turn those dials up to continue to help that funnel. Uh, I think too many people rely on the third-party data that's coming from like Facebook, Instagram, or some of their programmatic platforms. And they rely too much on that without getting a good overlay of, okay, is this really where these customers are coming from? Or is it just a piece of that multi-touch attribution model? And once you understand where your money's going and how these customers are coming in, 
your growth becomes a lot easier. And that's what we're working on now is really fine tuning the customer channels that, you know, what it looks like for our customers coming in through those channels. Um, most of the time customers hit multiple channels. And so being able to pro, uh, apply a weight to those channels and understand which ones we need to invest more in, uh, that's definitely one of our um, initiatives. Awesome. So thanks so much for coming on, Ryan, and sharing your your experience, this, your story and your expertise. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Felix. I really appreciate this time. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.